proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the way that he did. Because he does go about it in a different way to the other evangelists being Mark, um, Luke and John. And he did this because they all had a different audience in mind. Now, as I said, we we will be spending the next few months in this book and we'll see how tied to the Old Testament it really is. And that's what's so interesting about the gospel according to Matthew. Because the very fact that it is so tied to the Old Testament tells us something about his intended audience, doesn't it? And it's this. He presumes that they knew the Hebrew Scriptures. And more than that, that he could prove to them that Israel's Messiah had come because their own Scriptures pointed to Jesus as its fulfilment. Now, in saying all of this, I I will say this wasn't unique to Matthew. Uh, We do see it all through the New Testament, and there are numerous places that I could take you this morning. But for time's sake, I'll just um, mention two. For example, Acts 28, 23, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome, he set up a meeting with all the Jewish leaders of the city and showed them from the law and the prophets that Jesus is the Messiah of God's kingdom. We also see this in chapter 8 of Acts with Philip the Evangelist when he met the Ethiopian eunuch who was a Jewish convert. It's in that story that we see this man uh, ask Philip all these questions about Isaiah 53, which Philip then used to show that Isaiah was speaking about Jesus the whole time. And it's little wonder that the early church did this. Because Jesus even said of himself in Luke 24 that the law, the prophets, the Psalms, they're all pointing to him. So that's what Matthew's doing here. He's taking his eyewitness account, his first-hand experience, he's taking the Hebrew scriptures and he's showing his original audience who knew the Hebrew scriptures, either because they were Jew or converts to Judaism, and he was showing them why Jesus is the fulfilment of everything that was promised in their law, their prophets and the Psalms. And church, that's why he starts with where he starts, with a genealogy. Now, you might be here this morning and thinking, well, that's a really funny place to start with a family tree. And I would be inclined to agree with you, but that's why the historical context is so important for us to understand. Because Matthew is doing something here. He's doing something with his original Jewish audience that would have totally blown them away and it's this he's proving to them right off the bat right from the first words that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel because of where he's come from he says he's the son of David the son of Abraham verse 1 now why might that matter to them Well, quite simply because God promised in the Hebrew scriptures a king from Israel who would conquer the nations and become the king of all kings. And he promised that this king would come from the tribe of Judah. This is clearly prophesied uh, by Abraham's grandson, Jacob, while on his deathbed. 
uh, in Genesis 49.10, who said, The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And this is important. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. Do you hear that? The obedience of the nations shall be his. That's what Israel was expecting, a, a king to come from Judah who would come and liberate Israel from all her enemies. So the Messiah not only had to be Jewish, but he had to come from the tribe of Judah. That was the messianic expectation. And that's the big picture of what's happening here with this genealogy. Matthew's saying to to his audience, this Jesus, well, he has the qualifications for the job because he's from the right nation, and more than that, he's from the right family. But before we unpack that a bit more, I want to dive a little deeper here with you this morning because we have a tendency to skip over things like genealogies, don't we? Well, at least I do, And, and we try and get to the good stuff. But as you'll see here, as we work our way through this beautiful genealogy this morning, there is so much going on here that teaches us about God's sovereignty and his covenant of grace. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to work our way through this. Let's start from verse 2. We read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose name was Tamar. Now, I want to pause here for just a second, and I want to point out that Tamar is the first woman mentioned here. Now, if you remember, her name briefly came up while we were going through our series on Ruth just a few weeks back. Um, And her name came up uh, because she tricked Judah into thinking she was a prostitute. Anyway, to cut a very long and awkward story short, uh, because of those actions, Judah and Tamar uh, had a son, Perez, who was the great-great-grandfather of Boaz, who was the guardian redeemer of Elimelech's family. And it's there that we saw an incredible picture of a man who risked it all to redeem his family, which had become so lost, who gave it all so that he could redeem his people. Let's continue, verse 3. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who we know from the book of Joshua, was a heathen prostitute who helped the Hebrews who were spying out her own land. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, And we remember from that series that we went through, she was a Gentile woman who came back from pagan Moab with her mother-in-law. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, we're starting to get a picture already, aren't we? From Abraham to David. Matthew's including all sorts of characters for us so that we can see a picture of God working through both Jews and Gentile outcasts because God is bringing something about let's continue verse 6 David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife now this is the fourth mentioned woman here Uriah's wife and we know who that was right 
Her name was Bathsheba. And we know that by reading through 2 Samuel that Solomon was brought into this world through adultery and murder. Horrible stuff. Then Matthew turns his attention to the sons of David, which I won't read out here, but king after king, right up to the time of the Babylonian exile, we have things mentioned here to verse 11. So already in this family line, leading up to the Messiah, we're seeing some names that are listed which bring to mind how God did such incredible work through such sinful people to bring about such amazing things for his glory. But again, let's think about Matthew's original audience here. Every single one of these names must have been triggering images and stories in their minds, right? I mean, think about that second list from David onwards in verses 7 through to 11. Think about what those kings had done to their own people. Most, not all, but most of those people were wicked kings who led their ancestors astray and straight into destruction. So those names must have incited emotion in Matthew's audience who knew the scriptures. This isn't a boring list of names. Every single one of these names has stories attached to them. And put together, we're meant to see how God has guided his people and brought about his plan despite the circumstances and the people involved. Then after that, you've got from verses 12 through to 17, the exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem and more specifically to Joseph and Mary, which I'll speak on a bit more next week. Brothers and sisters, might I say, this is one messed up family tree, right? (laughs) Goes without saying. In other words, this is no perfect pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. We have adulterers, prostitutes, we have some heroes, we have Gentile outcasts, we have deceivers. They're all found in the genealogy from Abraham onwards. It's messy. But in saying that, this is the family tree through which God chose for his son to come into human history. So we might ask here this morning, why is this important? Why was it important for Matthew to start his gospel this way? Why was it important for the original recipients of this letter to hear any of this? And why is it important for you and I in this room this morning to know any of this? Well, it's as I said before. It's because God promised a king from Israel who would conquer the nations and become the king of all kings. And he promised that this king would come from the tribe of Judah. And that's what's so important about this list. Because there's not one person Not one king who even came close to fulfilling what God had promised to these people and to the world. That's why Matthew's opening words are so powerful and so potent. He starts by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Now, church, even the name Jesus means saviour. That's, that's what it means. It means Yahweh saves. But notice Matthew's bold assertion here. He says that this Jesus, this man that he followed, that he dropped everything for, as he'll go on to tell us in chapter 9, well, he's the Messiah, meaning Jesus is the anointed one, the one that was promised to come who would deliver God's people in power. And Matthew was saying just in this title, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is him. How do we know? Because he's the son of of David. Why mention David? Well, as I said before, the gospel according to Matthew is extremely tied to the Old Testament. And if you don't know what's going on here in the background, you could skip right over this important name drop that uh, Matt's kind of dropped here. So we need to see what Matthew's doing here. Just a bit of a background here. David was a king that was raised up by God to look after his people, to rule them and shepherd them. And there came a time when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. But the Lord said to him, and we see this in 2 Samuel, that he wasn't going to do that, but his son would. That Solomon, his son, he would build the temple. But what's astounding as you read through 2 Samuel 7 is that God entered into a covenant with David. And it's there that he promised him, and this is what's so important, it's there that he promised David that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever, 2 Samuel 7.13. That's why Matthew mentions David, because David was made a promise from God given a covenant from the Almighty that he would always have a son on the throne. There's something incredible about that word forever. That's the word he uses. I mean, you don't need to be a genius to figure out that God was making a promise here in 2 Samuel that is still in effect today. Those words were literally shaping eternity. God said to David, forever which meant that a son of David would endure on the throne for all time. This is why the genealogy is so important here in chapter 1. Because after David, we see that Solomon came to the throne. But then other men came to the throne and kept coming. Why? Because they all died. Meaning none of those kings were the son that God was talking about as they all came and they all went because they all died. None of them took the throne forever. Now church, all throughout scripture, God revealed more and more about this coming king who would come from the line of David to his people. Little details like how a child would come into the world, grow up, that he would be called the mighty God and Prince of Peace, among other things. And how he would take the throne of his father David and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, would rest on him. This is found in Isaiah chapter 6 and 11. Jeremiah adds in chapter 23 of his book that there would come a day where the righteous branch of David would be raised up and he would reign as king in his days. And in his reigns, the reign, the people of God would be saved. 
to which Ezekiel adds in chapter 37 of his book that those things look dire for the exiles, that those things look destroyed for the moment. God's promises stand and that God's servant shall be king one day. And God's people, they'll all have one shepherd. Church, that's why Matthew name drops David. Because the people of God were expecting for generations a king to come from the line of David who would gather his people, save them, and be their shepherd. Matthew's not just giving a list of names here. He is shouting in a very loud voice that the son of David, the one who will sit on the throne forever, he's here. He's come in Jesus, the Messiah. He is the son of David that we've all been waiting for. The next name he drops that we need to pick up is Abraham. Why is he mentioned? Well, because Abraham is the father of the people of Israel. And it was to him that a promise was made by God Almighty. That a covenant was made by God that from him a great nation would come and that God would bless all the families of the world through someone who would come from Abraham's family. It's as you mine the text of Genesis 12, 15 and 17, you see these promises from God to Abraham that he's going to form a covenant people for himself and that he would give them a promised inheritance on earth and they would be a blessing to all nations. And it's in this covenant that Abraham is promised that through his line that God will one day bless the entire world through someone in Abraham's family. It's in you, says God. It's in you that all the families of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3. So what's going on here? What's going on here in chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel? Well, essentially this. Matthew was showing his original audience, and by implication us here this morning, two incredible themes. The first is that nothing in history happens by accident. It's all intentional. Every single detail, including that police siren, every single, it's getting closer, isn't it? Every single detail in the Old Testament from the very beginning is under the sovereign hand of God. The Bible is his story. And that it's all pointing to a king who would come. And Matthew is saying this Jesus, who's the son of David, who's the son of Abraham, he is at the center of it all. That's what's going on here. That's the claim that Matthew is boldly making in chapter 1. And brothers and sisters, this isn't a boring list of names or just an interesting family tree. No, this is Matthew's bold claim that Jesus is the one to whom everyone and everything revolves. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the expected king and he is the one whom God has sent to bless the nations. So if this is true, if this is, as Matthew says here, that Jesus is the Messiah, 
that he is the son of David, that he is the son of Abraham. This has huge implications for every single person because it means that Jesus has rule and he has reign over your life and my life. And the reason for our lives is because we have been made to know, to worship and to follow this king. That's what Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through to 17 is all about. And why he started this way, because he sets the stage for the picture of the kingdom of heaven that he's going to expand on in the rest of his book. So as we end our time here this morning, how does any of, us, uh, any of this apply to us this morning? Well, there's two things that I want to point out to you, church. The first thing is that God is sovereign. This is clearly shown through all, uh, throughout this first chapter, through this whole genealogy. God is shown to be totally sovereign and always faithful to his covenant promises. You look at this list and it's full of evil kings and sinful men and women, even those who we might say are, are the best people on the list, like Abraham. Well, he was a polygamist who lied about his wife to people. David, well, he was an adulterer and murderer. This list is full of men and women who rebelled against the Lord time and time again, but in spite of Israel's sinfulness, in spite of God's own people rebelling hard against him, God still brought the saviour of the world into the world to save sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, God has not lost control and he is faithful to his covenant through it all. We see it here in our text before us this morning. Like with the women I mentioned earlier, it's clear that Jesus came through and for the outcast. They're all in this family tree to to show us that God is sovereignly at work through it all. And, And though we might not see it clearly in our own lives for the moment, no matter what you're going through, God has not lost control. He's bringing about his his glorious plans through it all. That's not to say we are not responsible for the evil we do. We are. Yet in the midst of all the evil that we or others commit, God is working in and through it all to accomplish his good purpose because he is a covenant-making and keeping God. He is faithful to his people. So the second thing that we see here in chapter 1 is that God is the saviour of his people, Jew and Gentile alike. That's the very reason, the very reason, by his grace alone, he made a covenant with Abraham. It was so that the nations might be blessed through him. But in the same breath, we we might ask why. Why did God choose Abraham? Was it because Abraham earned it? No, it was because of God's unmerited favour and love that he chose Abraham for Jesus to come into the world through this man, through the nation that he would make of him. Meaning, 
we've seen it clearly today. God doesn't make promises and covenants with people because they've earned it. Oh, it's all by God's grace alone. That's why God made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant to bless and save anyone from anywhere who comes up to him, comes to him. This is why Jesus says, I will in no wise cast anyone who comes unto me. And let me say, if you are here this morning and you are, you are unsure about all of this, then let me encourage you. As we slowly make our way through this wonderful good news over the next few months, you will indeed see that Jesus is the promised Messiah to which the scripture points and that he is the king who was promised and that he is worth bowing the knee to and following with all we are. Let me encourage you to keep coming, keep hearing, keep asking questions and explore these claims that God Almighty is making about his son through Matthew. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we thank you that you have indeed sent a saviour into the world, that you sovereignly, providentially have brought about Jesus God the Son made flesh to live perfectly on the count of his people, to be crucified for their sin, to be raised victorious. Father, we thank you for this passage that we've gone through this morning. And I ask for your people, I ask for your church to grasp the gospel in a way that it comes out of them with all those around them. We ask, Lord, that as we think of even the last words, that we would be a people that would go and make disciples of you, Lord Jesus. Help us all to understand the gospel. And Father, by your providence, by your sovereignty, please put people in our path to share this good news with. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.